you are backstage with Jared. And who's that there on this episode with me? It's only Matt Ryer. Oh, hello. Hi, Matt. Thanks for thanks for coming backstage. Oh, thanks for inviting me back here. It's cool, isn't it? It's very cool. Yeah, kind of comfy. You know, there's a fireplace. There's yeah, chairs. Yeah, it smells a bit strange. Well, that's mostly me. <laughs> well, uh, wanted to get you backstage. First of all, for those out there listening, maybe you've come to this episode because you are a Matt Ryer fangirl or fanboy, and you're wondering, what is this backstage thing? It's a show we like to do, kind of going behind the scenes of the changelog, talking about the inner workings, stuff that we don't like to navel gaze too much on our proper shows, and also just a chance to hang out, talk about John Wick trilogy, talk about Plex, what have you. And you can only get it on the master feed. So if you are a fan of GoTime, or if you're a fan of the changelog, or maybe you're a fan of JS Party or Practical AI, and you don't realize that we have a master feed, well, Backstage is the place where uh, you can, or excuse me, Master is the place where you can get Backstage. So there is one feed to rule them all. It's called Changelog Master Feed, changelog.com slash master. And that's the only way you can get these Backstages into your podcast apps. Now, of course, you can go to the website, Listen right there on the webpage. But if you want to subscribe to Backstage, subscribe to Master. We think you'll like most of our shows. If you like one of our shows, we hope you like the others. So that's Changelog Master. And I'm joined by Matt, as I just said, one of our GoTime panelists. And really the guy who so far on the, the newly refreshed GoTime is the one that makes me lol the most as I'm listening to the episodes. Matt, you have a, a good sense of humor. Also, that accent just makes lots of things you say. Uh, just hilarious to me and uh, I'm just so happy to have you on go time on the regular oh yeah thanks I love doing it the accent makes me sound a lot more sophisticated than I, am, than I actually really am you know like if you speak to someone a British person they know I'm not sophisticated <laughs> they can tell <laughs> but the rest of the world yeah I, I, I just sound uh, intelligent and sophisticated so I'll take it I don't know. It's, it has to be nice. It's almost like a superpower. Maybe it's like the next level of privilege we should start talking about. It's like the British accent privilege because <laughs> you have like a you have like an advantage on all of us in life. At least those of us on the other side, right? Uh, like you said over there, uh, it doesn't help you at all. And maybe an American accent helps, or maybe it hurts. I don't know. Depending on your thoughts on Americans, but the British accent over here, we definitely give extra extra credence to those words for some reason. It's odd. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that. I've witnessed it, but I, I just caution against it because you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the kind of the reason for this particular episode is because we've been talking a little bit, and I'd like to talk to more, get your thoughts about a changelog API I had mentioned in, I think, the Gophers Slack months ago as we were adding yet another ad hoc endpoint for some one-off request to our platform that I would like to have a proper API at some point. And I think you were at the time nudging me towards not, not solving a particular solution in the, in the ad hoc fashion in which I was solving it at the time. And I said, I considered doing a proper API. This is just kind of for now. And I wanted to use GraphQL. And you said, Hmm, can I, can I talk you out of that? Or I can't remember the exact words, but you definitely were you had opinions about that thought. And so uh, I would love to talk to you more about that and just kind of riff and ideate on what a changelog API might look like, on how I might build such a thing. 
uh, why or why not to use specific strategies or schemas. But first, Matt, I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Uh, you jokingly poke and prod at JavaScript quite a bit, but as you were telling me before we hit record, you don't, you don't hate the language. In fact, you've written a fair bit yourself and uh, used to be a JavaScript developer. So maybe just tell me and the folks how you came to Go and how you came to be on GoTime. Yeah, yeah, as I said, so I was a JavaScript developer and I was a JavaScript developer because I learned quite early. I met some, I worked with some great designers and some great tech people in London and I learned from them that actually the user experience turns out to be way more important than I had previously given it credit for. So working on that user experience and delivering something that users love to use. It's not just making it usable or making it hard to abuse and all these things. It's actually, I like applications where people are excited to use it because of whether it just looks good or it, mm -hmm. it does things in the way that makes sense to them or whatever. And of course, you know, rich web experiences are all sort of powered by JavaScript still. So yeah, for many years, that's what I did. Um, and I loved, I loved doing it. And in fact, I used to love the fact that you could just do anything with, with JavaScript, you know, you can change the prototype on a string and add methods to strings. And now all strings can have these extra methods and things. Right. So I got very excited about all that. And Go is kind of the antithesis of that. Um, they went completely the opposite way for some quite good reasons, but it's an interesting dichotomy to see. Mm -hmm. it, it, the The Go philosophy is we don't have you can't do things like that. You can't check. You can't add methods to any kind of built in types. You can't overload operators. I know you can't do that in JavaScript either. Um, I don't think so. They, and they do that because then the code is easier to read, essentially. So if you, if in JavaScript you've added um, your own special extensions or methods or whatever, if you've been playing around with different prototypes and changing things, it's possible to get some code which looks or well, isn't familiar. Does you know you, you don't know what this is going to do just by reading the code. You'd have to dig in and probably find out where that thing came from, where it's right. set up and what. Um, and, and so in Go, they prioritized readability. So you can't do any of that magic stuff. And some people think that that makes the language quite boring. And in some ways it does, but it makes it extremely readable. And so, it, you know, there's much, there's a lot of benefit that come really. comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would tend to agree. My experience with Go is that it's, it's readable. And it's very straightforward. And I appreciated how quickly I could learn. I didn't learn the entire API uh, of like the core language, but pretty darn close on one project, one small API that I built in Go. And yeah. I liked that. I liked where I could hold most of the language in my head at once. Uh, maybe, I mean, as a, as a regular Go developer, maybe you have the entire thing in your head at all times, including some of the standard library. But there, it just has such a small surface area that I, I really appreciated that. One aspect of it that did kind of strike me as not as readable is all the if error not equal nil checks that seem to be sprinkled throughout the code. Maybe they just shake out as white noise over time, but it felt like it was more noise than signal 
because of that error checking. Is that just a uh, a thing that noobs think, and then over time, you just get used to just checking that often? Well, it's definitely something that, if you're not familiar with Go, it's definitely something you notice. That, yes. That's for sure. And and it does get a bit tedious for people because they're used to languages like, whether it's Java or C Sharp, or even JavaScript, you could say, where there's exceptions are thrown. Things are thrown if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Go doesn't do that. Instead, it's usually the the second argument or the last argument returned. It can re- you can return multiple arguments from functions and methods in Go. So usually the last thing is an error type, which is just a value like a string or like an int. So you can then just check to see if that's nil. If the error is nil, you know that it succeeded and... Uh, you just kind of carry on. So it's mm-hmm. very common to have these early checks of if error doesn't equal nil, then do something. Right. And pe- and people report that tedium, and that is something. Uh, the, the Go the Go team were actually trying to solve and address this problem in quotes um, uh, because they hear it again and again. And in the surveys, this is something that always ranks quite high that people yeah. complain about. Um, two things I'll say on that. One is it. You know, just because you, in previous or in other languages, you have exceptions, and in this and in Go, you have to explicitly do it, it doesn't mean anything's that things are that much different, really. Because um, you still have to, hopefully, if you're, if you're doing it properly, you've, you have to handle exceptions as well. Right. Um, and it's easy to not. It's easy to just... Um, write your code, ignore any th- any possible exceptions, and then if something does go wrong, it's just a crash of your program. In Go, since you're checking these values all the time, you actually think more about what's going to happen then if this particular thing fails. Mm. And you might make the decision that, yeah, okay, this is program ending, that's end of the world, there's no way we can carry on if this doesn't work. But sometimes you think, mm, okay, if that thing failed, maybe I could retry it, or maybe it's okay that it failed. Like if it was getting something from a cache or uh, something like that, then mm-hmm. then it's okay that that failed. You can carry on still kind of optimistically. Uh, but you get to think about it and make those decisions, which is turns out to be very valuable. I can definitely see that. I know as a developer, I tend to think along the happy path, first and foremost, mm. and then maybe circle back or sometimes don't circle back because I'm moving on <laughs> to like what what could go wrong here or what do I do if this doesn't work out so well. And I know in the Erlang and Elixir communities, they have a kind of a fail fast, fail early and fail often. I can't remember exactly what that maxim is, but it's similar here where it's like we should be thinking about these things right up front. Like this is part of your system is how to deal with these scenarios. So... Yeah, especially if you think about building services and things. If you're make, if you're using a network to access a service, then that can fail. And For sure, absolutely. And in fact, you should assume it will fail. And and that's that's kind of the point. It was interesting that you mentioned that you thought this was kind of hurting readability. Um, and, and in a way, it's I know what you mean about it being noisy. Mm-hmm. But actually, as far as being expressive goes, it's literally telling you everything that's going to happen. 
uh, if this error doesn't equal nil, then we're either going to maybe we just return the error. And that's the very common case where you your function returns an error too. So you're just sort of passing it up the stack. And then you may deal with it in one place uh, in the main function or something like that. That's perfectly acceptable, but you've you've kind of done that explicitly. And so if you look in other people's code and you go and jump down and, and you're looking at a method somewhere deep in this system, mm-hmm. it's extremely clear what's going to happen because there's no magic. There are no hidden exceptions. You don't have to know that things are being caught elsewhere and things like this. You're just returning an error type from this function. So I think that helps readability and it helps see just literally what's going to happen if if something does go wrong here. Mm. That's interesting. I think there's a balance to strike with readability in terms of verbosity. I, I agree with you that explicit when it comes to readability is better than implicit because you can't read something that you can't read, right? If it's implied, if it's tucked under the covers, it's not readable by definition because it's it's insinuated, so to speak. And so explicit is better. And where it starts to, I think it's a balance because you can move on, you can move overboard from explicit to verbose. Not that the if error not equal nil is verbose, but over a certain level of repetition, you can either start to uh, scan quickly over that verbosity and miss something, which reduces readability, or, um, well, I guess that would be the only downside. But... I agree yeah. that that you are telling a story, you know, if you compare it to prose or storytelling, if you say the same thing over and over and over again, it tends to become diminished. So it is a balance. I think it's a it's a fair trade. And and with all programming languages, these things are trade-offs. There's not one true way. And I appreciate the different languages for the different trade-offs they make. And I think that's just one that the Go team made and it has its benefits. I think explicitly handling those things is a benefit. Um, but I can definitely understand the people who submit the surveys and say, hey, it'd be awesome if I could not do this every single time. Yes. And that was the try proposal it was a, a way to make that simpler. But it was actually too magic, I think. And therefore, it didn't make it in, didn't get through the proposal phase. Um, but you're right about that. Being explicit's better because there's so much already that's implicit in our code that we can't yeah. help. You know, so yeah, if the language itself helps us be a bit more explicit, but you're right, there is a trade-off and, you know, sometimes it's probably just personal taste. Like if you, if you, if you just get really good at Java exceptions and you've done them for years and you love them and you've been able to use them very effectively and, and hopefully not using it to control flow too much, things like this, you know, and followed good practices, then you probably would feel like, this is too much when you come to go. And I've definitely heard that too. My experience was in the beginning, it was kind of quite strange that I had to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a bit, a bit like it was a little bit strange that I had to explicitly kind of create every structure that I was going to use. Um, it, it was kind of a similar thing where I, it was it was odd in the beginning, and then once I got used to it and started to see feel the benefits from it, um, it got it got easier and, and now stops being a problem. But yeah, it does come up occasionally. And most likely now that you're used to it, it's almost odd on the other side of the fence, right? Now when you don't have to, when you can just willy nilly create an object 
out of thin air like you could in JavaScript, for example, and with no guarantees about the keys or values or any of the content inside of that struct or that object, that may feel like, does that feel like cowboy coding to you or in a certain degree? And just in comparison to the explicitly define everything up front style. Well, I definitely now program in a go way in mm -hmm. other languages. So, you know, because you, you don't, you don't have to have, um, say you have an array of objects in JavaScript, they could all be a different type and have different fields and things. Right. So you can do that, but I probably wouldn't do it. And that, that is something that I learned from go, the fact that go would limit you there. Uh, and I saw the benefits of why that, why those limits were good. I.e., it's clearer, it's simpler and everything's the same, that, that has some benefits that just sort of cognitive benefits. So I kind of now when I do JavaScript, I, I write somewhat, I take some of the lessons from Go when I'm writing other language in other languages. So that's quite nice. Yeah, that's an advertisement for just learning other languages, even if you're not going to mm. switch ecosystems or languages, because you yes. actually, you pick up styles and, and you kind of can move interesting ideas or better ways of doing things even in the current way that you're doing i know as i started to pick up elixir i started to write my ruby code more in a, an elixir fashion over time and mm. even with a few of the things i learned in functional programming and javascript which is very much optional to a degree uh, javascript is one of these strange languages that's kind of both functional programming and object oriented depending on how you use it yeah um but i started to write more functional style ruby code Still writing Ruby, just I got exposed to these new ideas over here and I carried them over there and my, I felt like my Ruby code got better as a result. It's funny, that's the same thing that happened to me with Rust because Rust is, is kind of a pure functional programming language. And it, it, Go is kind of like JavaScript, as you describe. You can be somewhat functional. You can write functional code in Go. You know, mm -hmm. you can certainly follow some of the patterns like... Uh, pure functions. So a function that will return a new object, it will never mutate the anything passed into it or um, uh, or even if it's on a struct, it will never mutate the fields in that struct. They are pure functions and you can write them in Go. Mm. So so yeah, it does get you thinking like that and you might decide, yeah, this should be a this should be a pure function and hopefully you're deciding that based on what the user is going to expect to happen. Um, the user of whatever it is you're writing, whether it's an API or a package that's going to be open sourced or something. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but but there are, you know, you get to use some of those other benefits. I do recommend people playing around with other languages and things. It's It feels like um, it's too much work, I think, to a lot of people, especially if they're new to programming. It just feels like learning in a whole other language because it, to learn the first language is such a big task. Right. You f it feels like subsequent languages would would be as hard, and and they're really not because you you know you have all that f all those foundations that you got from the first language that apply in most cases, and if they're different, then that's an interesting. That's usually where there's something interesting going on. Yeah, I liken it to to learning spoken languages, especially if they're along the same root origin. So if you learn Spanish, like if all you speak is English and you learn Spanish, that is a heavy lift. It's a lot of work, even though they, they mm. even though those two languages do have some common roots. But once you've learned Spanish, picking up Italian is quite a bit easier. 
because they have so many cognates. They have so many similarities. They're both based on, you know, Latin romance languages. And there's so many similarities that the second language is much easier than the first. And then you go and grab French or something and, and you become a linguist all of a sudden because you are able to learn those other languages. You wonder how these folks can speak six languages. Well, it's because it does get easier. You, you become good at learning languages. And mm. so a similar thing happens, I think, with programming languages, especially when they're in the same kind of realm. But the real advantage, or I think the real benefit, is to go completely outside of your, your comfort zone. So if you learn Spanish, go learn Chinese or something. Some like a completely different language. So if you if you know Go, you know, go learn something completely different. Find something so different than Go. Lisp or something, I don't know. And it'll really expand your mind. It'll be harder, but beneficial. Great. Great advice. So let's turn to you giving me some advice here. So we had been talking about a changelog API. Mm. And... Uh, GraphQL is the new Shiny, and I've never built a GraphQL anything. I've used GraphQL somewhat. I've played with it as a client, really only doing queries, not even mutations, on, for instance, GitHub's API. Um, I built REST APIs plenty. And my statement was, hey, if we're going to build an API for changelog, why not make it a GraphQL API? And it seemed like you had some caution against that or just some thoughts on the differences and the benefits and the you know, the drawbacks. So I'm just curious your thoughts on APIs in general and then on those two styles of APIs, the rise of GraphQL and, and all mm. that. Yeah, well, there was a recent GoTime episode we did with Frances Campoy on graph databases. Mm. That may not be out yet or is coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, yeah, the... Um, and so it, that's a very interesting one. We kind of talk about this and it's really come to me comes down to the fact that graph graph data and graph databases are perfect. If that's the, if that fits the problem space that you're using it for. Um, and so for example, relationships with people is kind of perfect for that. Mm-hmm. If you have other types of data that, that is models in, in a kind of, natural way as a graph or as a tree of data if you could imagine that or you know there's different ways to think about it uh, then i think a graph database and a graphql interface and all that stuff really makes sense for me the question is around having a graphql interface into over a relational database or other type of data store where the data doesn't naturally either it doesn't live in that kind of format or or structure or whether mm-hmm. or whether it just um storing it in that way wouldn't be very natural so that's really where the, the question comes from because i i've used apis which are essentially graphql and by the way the graphql there's a lot to like about graphql especially if you're a front-end developer you get to be really specific about the data you get back so you can in theory ask for you know, less if you're not going to use it. So that's nice. It feels nice. Right. I mean, and at scale, you probably that matters. For most people, that probably won't matter because the scales we're talking about are just much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I think having, I've used APIs that that are essentially GraphQL interfaces over relational databases. And it's too easy to, 
abuse it by, you know, if you ask for, because it's very natural in GraphQL to ask for, say, I want this, I want these objects. And then I know that there's some relationship where these might be parents or children. So you might mm -hmm. have like groups and there might be, say, songs. So say that we've got some kind of music library. So the songs, they're in genres. So we could actually get the genres and maybe get the top five songs from each of those genres. That's very easy to describe in GraphQL. Right. But that might turn into something very expensive on the back. Gnarly. Something gnarly. Yeah. And and a bit unnatural versus um, like you might, you might want to denormalize that data if you're going to be using it often, that kind of query. Um, and they don't, you don't have any op mm. and much opportunity to, to do that. Those kinds of, uh, operations where you're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to specifically maintain this index or this view of the data because we know that the homepage needs this and it's there ready to go. Um, if it's just GraphQL, it's almost like, not as bad as, but it's almost like exposing a, a SQL to the JavaScript developer where they can right. just ask for anything and do any joins they like. And it can be very expensive. So it's that, it's that where it doesn't quite fit the problem space. Well, let me say that in our specific case, it would be exactly that. It would be a GraphQL API on top of a Postgres database filled with tables which are related to each other with foreign keys. Very typical hmm. relational database schema. Now we have podcasts as you probably, uh, you've been in our admin. So I, I don't know, as a developer, I can like start to decipher people's schemas as I use their, <laughs> as I use their admins at least. Uh, so you probably know uh, some of the nouns and relationships in our system. We have podcasts, podcasts have hosts, podcasts have episodes. Each episode has, you know, guests and hosts as well as other data directly attached to it, like transcripts and whatnot. Very simple relational thing. And in fact, I even used, there are some tools out there, I can't remember the name of the one, that will just take your Postgres database and just turn it into a GraphQL API. And I toyed with one of those uh, post GraphQL, maybe it was called? I don't know. And it, it literally exposed everything it was it was exactly an sql it was a graphql access to our entire database at the time yeah and i was right. like well i don't i don't want that i want at least want to be able to like craft it a little bit and expose what i want and hide what i didn't want and you could do all that to i, I don't want to berate the post graphql i think that was the name of the project the author of that um his intention is that you define all of your access and your public private stuff for your GraphQL database, like inside of Postgres, like really leveraging the features of Postgres. And we don't do that. We put a lot of our business logic in our application layer in, mm. in Elixir. So I didn't want to you know, duplicate efforts there. And so I was like, well, this isn't really for us. Um, but there are other yeah. options in implementing it. But that That's being said, it's exactly one. what you describe. It's, it's a relational database and it would have a GraphQL surface area. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another point here, which I think is important. Um, when we built machine box, our, one of the, one of the key things we spent a lot of time on was actually 
the APIs. I mean, MachineBox, for anyone that doesn't know, is it's machine learning technology inside a Docker container, and then it has a, um, a an API which lets you do things like we have Facebox, which lets you, you can teach it faces and ask it to recognize faces with images and things like this. And the API talks in terms of faces and talks in terms of um, uh, images and people, you know, it, it has this language. Mm-hmm. And it, that's because it was handcrafted for that problem space. And that's kind of the opposite of the, the, this approach of using tools to generate and just automatically expose things like you talked about. Um, it's a different approach. It, it, it feels like you're going to get a big saving by these automatic things. But whenever you go too far that way, you end up with an API that it doesn't tell the story. It's just everything. Mm-hmm. And also leaks that leaks a lot of the internals too. I mean, you're literally leaking the database, your database structure, which might be okay because... Like you say, you've got hosts, you've got blogs. Yeah, sorry, you've got podcasts that have right. hosts and there's episodes there. And I suppose the episodes have lots of hosts, um, one one or, or more, and right. also has guests. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, maybe maybe the public, um, the public model of your data matches and that's okay. But sometimes that won't be the case. Sometimes there will be internals that you want to, either keep secret or just because they're messy or maybe even give yourself the option of changing it later. And if you've just exposed this sort of raw GraphQL interface, you, your hands become tied. You can't, you can't change things around internally because you, your API has already made promises. Mm. Don't we find many rest style or recess oriented APIs also fall into that trap of, I, I've, I've used many rest APIs in my day and I feel like, it's like, oh, this is basically their table. Here's their here's their users table. Here is their tweets table. Or you know, for example, like it feels like many REST APIs do that same thing, which is basically here is our internal structure exposed for you to query. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's you're not protected from that by just because you're using a REST API or something. Yeah. Um, it's more about hand coding it, handcrafting it, and, and telling those stories versus um automatic tools that just expose data but to be honest it again it's just it's just really what you care more about in that particular case because like you say often you have a table of um whatever and there's a link as some kind of relationship to another table and that's what it's going to look like in the api as well and so maybe in those cases it's okay well, the cool thing about backstage and being able to talk about our use case is that we we don't have to speak in abstracts. I can tell you exactly what our goals are. So I do know what the goals would be for a changelog API. I wouldn't just build one to check a checkbox. And my goal would be to first of all, it'd be mostly read only. Like we we don't have we have we have very little user generated content on changelog.com. We have comments. Uh, on episodes and on news items. We have submissions, so you can submit a news item that we may or may not feature on the news feed. You can submit a request to request an episode. Um, That's basically it. Now we do extend our admin to certain hosts and editors, etc. But mostly the API would be a read-only API, and I guess the goal for that API would be to allow our listeners and those interested to consume our content in a programmatic way 
and create their own tools perhaps for consumption or do analysis. I know there's been interest in ingesting our transcripts for maybe some fun machine box style things. Mm. Um, and so ultimately I would want it to be the thing, the thing that's cool about just putting an API out there in a situation like ours where we're not trying to, you know, uh, monetize its use in regard of like transactionally is that we really want it to be consumed in a way that is empowering to the end person and very much in that old mashup style web 2.0 like hey let's take this api and that api mash them together you know i don't know if you were around during those days but i just loved how open all the apis were and it's like hey take our data and use it that's very much the spirit of what we would be doing and so mm. my goal would be for like, and that's why I was thinking GraphQL because it feels like that would provide more flexibility for those front end devs or for those end people to just kind of feel like they're creating, you know, just, I wonder if it's more ergonomic for a front ender or for a API developer than a REST API. Yeah, it, it might be. And one of the things that you get and I'm not sure how easy this is to provide, but I've, I know that every GraphQL API I've seen has it, is this discovery that you get mm-hmm. and the documentation that gets generated. And also you, the ID, you get this kind of web-based IDE that lets you, you can actually craft your queries in it and it gives Which you auto slick, yeah. Very cool, yeah. So from a, from the a discovery point of view, that that is probably very valuable in your case. Uh, especially when you just want to expose the data and just see how people can be creative about that. Right. Whether it, yeah. And I could imagine people building visualizations and um, yeah, processing the transcripts, even if not for machine learning training data, you could, um, you could process the transcripts and detect sentiment and things like this, for example. So you'd be able to, you might be able to then have a filter that says, I'm only interested in positive podcasts. Right, right, right. Um, whereas where a certain threshold is is met, you know, and so things like that could be, um, and also, I mean, how about like for adult filter, like you'd be able to find podcasts automatically that were suitable for children. Um and oh, well, like all this. of our sh- all of our shows are suitable for children, Matt. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you must edit out a lot of when Mark Bates is on the show. Then, <laughs> we do have a heavier edit on Mark's shows for sure. <laughs> well, similarly, you could say, I only want to listen to Go Time when Matt Ryer is on the pod. Or when you, th- when you talk about sentiment analysis, and I'm sure you're much more uh, of a machine learning expert than myself. I, all I know from machine learning, I've learned on practical AI, whereas you built a successful company around these things. Sentiment analysis is interesting. It seems like it's very achievable in like the positive negative fact. But what about more difficult things to to extract? Where are we? Well, I'm thinking like with snark, for instance. Can sentiment analysis uh, pick up sarcasm or snark? Because a lot of the stuff you say on GoTime, I think, would be triggered by a snark uh, sentiment analysis tool. But is that something we can do with these this day, or is it still difficult? Well, humans get really, that wrong all the time. Yes. Yes. Um, that's true. That is true. (laughs) The, um, you know, it's all about the training data. This is something that was the, the big revelation of when we were building machine box, we, we had in our head that the models would 
perform to a certain ac- accuracy. And Facebox happens to be w- one of the most accurate face recognition technologies in the world, believe it or not. It still wow. beats it still beats Google and Amazon and some of the others in, in some of our testing. Um, so, so, but what we thought was that we would be continually working on these models to make the models better. Uh, and and in some cases that that is what you do but what it what was a surprise for us was that actually improving the training data was by far, had much bigger impact and so we didn't spend that much time on the models themselves we spent a lot more time on training data so to answer your question about um sarcasm and things like this it's really mm-hmm. down about comes down to the quality and the amount of training data gotcha um, and then it would be able to detect it we built a fake news detector that mm. worked surprisingly well. You take a, a news article, and I think we took the title the and the body, mm. and you run it through the model, and it could just say, "Yeah, this is this is looks like fake news." And fake news was just like the sort of obviously Burgeoning. fake, oh. yeah, like not you know. the in but that gray area where it's like it's fake to one person but not to the other person, but like the obvious, like this is a spam, like just like. Yes. Outright Whether lie. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so like, um, uh, junk science was one category, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and satire also. So like the onion, it noticed yeah, this is satire and we, we don't really know how it knew these things. We just knew that in our tests, it did well, um, because of the training data. So we, you know, we throw loads of examples of, of, like onion articles in for example right and and loads of bbc articles and so at that point we're making a decision that onion is satire and bbc is is real news right and we might choose another um another news outlet that we consider to not be not be ac- brilliantly accurate news uh, you know um there's some examples sure. in the uk and the us of that um and so yeah it's really our opinion that's encoded into this model but but it was able to um, look at an, an article, news article, and tell you with a quite a lot, quite a high level of accuracy whether it was you should ignore it or not. Um, and Facebook were actually interested in obviously Facebook, Facebook has this problem because yes. stuff gets shared shared around the world extremely quickly, and there's so much of it. It's very hard for them to manually uh, kind of police that and check that people aren't being misinformed and so there's there's hope for machine learning to to do that but of course it's not perfect we still have to we still have to know we still have to decide like what goes into which bucket in the training data right yeah that's fascinating it reminds me of there's a subreddit i think called not the onion and it's where people (laughs) post news headlines which are so far-fetched that you would think the onion wrote the headline (laughs) but they're actually reality or i mean you know obviously you have to read each one and decide whether it's true or not but it would be interesting to to try to trick a machine learning algorithm with you know i'm sure you could just with bad data Mm. and it would be pretty much useless so the data is really what it's all about if you just put the onion a bunch of onion articles and a bunch of not the onion articles into a model it would probably have a hard time deciphering between the two because they are hand-selected as being onion-esque, right? Yes. Well, you see, we 
We don't know for sure, but we suspected that there were people that were using our model to make their fake news writing better. Uh, because they could, yeah, that's another way to use the technology to say, okay, well, we're going to, we're, we're creating fake news. Does it pass this test? Can this, can this model from machine box kind of suss us out and figure out what we're doing? And I, and I suppose if it can't, then they might, they might publish it with some confidence there. Wow. Um, yeah. So that we don't know for sure that that was happening, but we have, uh, we had strong suspicion that, that that was being used for that reason, which is very, kind of um you know when you it, it's interesting when we're building machine learning technology it's it is so new there is a lot to think about from the ethical side um and mm-hmm. and and some cases came up where we were we were kind of thinking about this um and whether it's something that we thought as you know we'd like to be ethical in the in the work that we do there were some areas where it was quite difficult one example was um, Facebox, there was a conscious early decision for Facebox to not work on children's faces. Mm-hmm. There are some good use cases for automatic face detection for children, like if they're missing, if a, if, if a young person's gone missing and, and sure. you could just process all the CCTV and find them and save them, then the side of a great. mailbox, you know, when somebody goes missing, that, that face goes out. Well, if you could already have that systematized, you could be searching before before any humans, you know, yeah. would have to or be able to. So, yeah, yeah. And, and and even build systems that coordinates across cameras and tracks, you know, mm-hmm. notices the timestamps of where, where someone was spotted and all this. Um, that, of course, could be abused. Massively. You know, in, in lots of ways, yeah. So... So yeah, but but not not being able to detect children's faces that was something that we sort of decided early we weren't going to we just weren't going to try and do that for ethical reasons. Um and I think that's a something that programmers should think about if you're working on something do you feel good about like do you feel like the ethics are okay with it? Um and there are some examples I have friends that work around town on on various projects where that really is a big question for them. It's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. So if you're out there and if we've we've developed our changelog API and you're going to use machine learning against our transcripts to find every time Jared says something dumb, don't do that. It's not ethical. You know, <laughs> ethics, come on. Yeah, you don't, need a, you don't need a machine learning model for that, mate. <laughs> no. You just have to f- find the episodes you're on. That's the easy button. <laughs> uh, so what what's the state of machine box because you made this fun go time promo the other day which uh, i'll put in the show notes we've memorialized it on youtube so it'll it'll last forever on twitter things you know come and go but on youtube they last forever this fun video and i on the tweet you said i i really do need to get a job you are you are fun employed i believe is the term and so i'm mm. assuming machine box has been sold or was it tell me tell me that story where are you at yeah i call it pun employed Cause unemployed it, yeah because it's a pun isn't it <laughs> it is <laughs> but um so yeah we sold actually yeah we sold machine box um Who'd you and sell we to? we sold it to a company called veritone which okay. is a california based company that do their big ai operating system kind of massive platform running ai at serious scale and all these things machine box was a small little developer tool that we wanted to just put in the hands of developers so that they could use machine learning in their own projects and build classifiers and solve other types of problems. And 
Um, but but if you needed to deploy that at scale or run it in any serious way, you kind of had to do that yourself. We just shipped Docker containers, um, and you know, mm. a lot of a lot of our early customers had their own Kubernetes running or other similar uh, platforms that they were already maintaining, so it fit nicely into that. Um, and then uh, the and then Veritone. We, they were an early customer and they said, well, look, we, we have lots of demand for this kind of technology. Um, and one of the things that Machinebox allows is, since it's a Docker container, you can run it anywhere. You can run it on-prem, you can run it in various clouds. Mm-hmm. You have the sort of flexibility of, which you don't get for the other machine learning AIs, uh, APIs, sorry. You don't have that same flexibility for the other machine learning APIs. And so, so it made sense to join together and provide that technology at that scale yeah. to their customers. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Quite, yes. quite a rewarding experience. I mean, you build something from scratch and it has so much value, you know, that it gets yeah, acquired. It, That's really neat. No, no, it was. It was, uh, it was a very interesting experience and surprising in some ways. Like... Um, I think for the whole of my career, it's and for a lot of people, the the dream is you make a little startup and then you sell it, and it's like that's that's like almost like the startup dream, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and it's once you've done that, you then. I mean, we, we were we were, we stayed and worked for the company for a year, uh-huh. um, but once you've done it, it's kind of oh, okay, so. I thought that was going to be the thing that you do, and, and then you're just happy you're forever. Done. Yeah, yeah. Mojito no. Island, as they call it. Right. Yeah. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. No, that was the surprise. It's kind of somewhat underwhelming, an experience because, um, the thing if the thing that drives you is suddenly gone, you have to find something else to drive you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was a, a, a surprise that came out of the whole process, but I'm still glad, uh, obviously glad we did it. And for sure. Yeah. The tech is in good hands and it's, it's really the, where it belongs because, you know, it's now being used at scale to solve some really awesome problems. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I was speaking with my kids the other day about success and achievement. And my, my uh, son, Wes, his baseball team is last summer. We, I was coaching them. We won the, the nine U summer baseball league tournament oh congratulations yeah well thank you very much i i I didn't get any hits uh but it was fun and you know of course it was an exciting thing and it was a lot of build-up and there was stress and pressure and all the things that you feel as you go through a a competition Hmm. and we went through the championship game and we won and we you know we jumped up and down and they, they threw gatorade at me or whatever and then i asked him how does it feel you know you won and he said doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel. Yeah. And I said, ah, now you've learned one of the lessons of life is that uh, achievements, for some reason, there's, there's, there's less satisfaction in them once you achieve than you thought there was going to be. And then, I mean, it's hokey, but really you look back and the thing that you appreciate most was the, the season, right? The run up to the championship and all the work that you put in. And the actual accomplishment is somewhat unsatisfying and leaves you 
wanting more, which is the definition of unsatisfying, right? If you're satisfied, then you don't need any more. But yeah. it leaves you wanting more and you, there's an emptiness there. And it's kind of surprising, but it's a shared experience. I mean, you're not alone in that. You know, a mm. lot of, that's why a lot of people are serial entrepreneurs because they have that success and then they think, I need to go get that feeling again. I have to get back to that point. And so they try again. You mean like a serial entrepreneur, like the guy who started Kellogg's? That's right. So, you know, yeah. he had his lucky charms and then he's like, I need to invent <laughs> Cheerios. <laughs> but, but actually, yeah, it's, it's, that's so true. It's an interesting lesson uh, and actually highlights the fact that working like these 12 hour days that people do and more um, and, and all this like putting all this work into the project, um, which I do uh, still because sometimes you just love something that you're doing and that's what you that's what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but actually, the you know, making sure that you that, that, that you're happy and it's sustainable along the way is so important. And that's more important knowing that because I've been through that thing where we we, we you know, we had the success. So right. now I sort of realize, okay, there are different things that might matter more and um, you should watch out for those along the way this time. So that's a, a lesson that I've definitely taken. Although I was still, I mean, I was recently building a little blog for myself and uh, I was just constant, I was obsessed with it. I get a bit obsessed. So I was mm -hmm. just up early working on it, forgetting to kind of break to eat uh, these kinds of things starting to creep in. So I have to be very conscious about it and go and try and, you know, take deliberate breaks, go for walks, try and do some exercise, all these things. Mm -hmm. um, they are important and they help sustain it. And the amazing thing, of course, which I've heard lots of other people say is you, you can solve a lot of problems when you're not thinking about them, whether it's while you're asleep or just doing something else. Absolutely. And similarly, you can get inspired that way too. In fact, you probably need to be out in the world, interacting with people, uh, with different people, and probably the more diversity you can get, the better. Mm -hmm. The yeah, the inspiration that you that can just find you in in those situations, which you then can translate to something that you're working on that you wouldn't have. Um, they're they're so valuable. So that's. That's another reason why people should turn the screens off, go outside, go and meet friends. They should do these things. It's good for your work. So what's next for you then? Well, David Hernandez, who is the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Machinebox, David Hernandez and I are very interested in um, project management and the way that teams work. And also we've, we're very... We've, we have strong opinions about how to run dev teams mm. and we think lots of people are doing this wrong. So we may, we, we may build some tooling and we may write about these sorts of things um, and see if we can help teams be more sustainable and, and happier and, but also more productive as well. There's a lot of bad practices around um, which, which people don't know that they're bad practices. Often people are sort of running a bit on autopilot, it seems like. Um, and tools like Jira and Slack. I mean, Slack, the fact that you can just interrupt somebody in Slack is kind of uh, insane uh, for, from an engineering point of view. <laughs> oh, for sure. 
And especially features like that at here, where you can just, in a channel, you can just write at here and then send a message. And that will alert everyone who happens to be online and in that channel, which can sometimes be, I saw one the other day, 85 people was Mm. alerted because of this thing. Imagine that. Imagine walking into a room and there's 85 people and you just go, here, and scream it. And everyone has to look at you and then you say, has anyone seen that document that I need? Right. You know what I mean? you, no, people wouldn't tolerate it, but we tolerate it on Slack for some reason. So oh, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's G- funny you say G- that because while we talk, Adam is slacking me right now and trying to distract me while I'm on this <laughs> call with yeah. you, which is incredibly rude. Um, and then also it reminds me think of like Slack, you're going to bring up Jira. Surely Slack is not the only one to blame here because... I mean, the infamous reply all on email has been going on for, I guess, decades now. Yeah. Where, um, I won't name names, but I've had some friends who work at large corporations and we'll talk about some email chains, which will be going out to literally thousands and thousands of people and be concerning like two or three of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just insane, the, uh, yeah. the inefficiencies there. Well, I think Gmail hides reply all now, but yeah, you have to kind of dig into the menus to find it. So the mm. default is it will just reply to the one person. That's good. Um, so yeah, they're trying to sort of use the tooling to help you make better decisions or, or just that the defaults become the better, healthier decisions. And that's the, that's the sort of thing that we, that we may uh, build in our next project. We started to sort of prototype some things um, We've, we've come up with a name already, which is very mm, important. That's the hardest part. It's the hardest part, but it's, it's very fun. And when you get the right name for the, for the project, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, are, you ready so, to re- are you ready to reveal it right now on, on backstage? I might have to come back and do it. <laughs> well, come on to a proper show uh, if you're going yeah. to reveal, do a big reveal. Yeah, okay. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Looking forward to your writing as well. And of course, uh, looking forward to GoTime. Anything GoTime related that you'd like to uh, maybe wax uh, poetic about, maybe future episodes, things you're, you're interested in doing with the show or taking the show places or anything along those regards, because we haven't mentioned GoTime much. And uh, really, it's the linchpin for uh, how you and I even get to hang out today. Yeah. Yeah, well, GoTime is a lot of fun to do. Um, everyone that comes on the show, they always report after they had a you know a really great time. So it's it's very fun for anyone that hasn't heard it. You don't have to be into Go to to listen to it. Often we talk about things around the language anyway. Mm-hmm. Like I said, gra- graph databases recently, um, and and yeah, it's it. I, I think we want more live engagement. We want more people to listen live. And whether that's Twitter or in the uh, GoTime FM channel in Gopher Slack, where, you know, we're happy to be interrupted because we're asking for it. So it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we want more of that for sure, because it's so it's so great when the community, when someone in the community just has a question about something that we're talking about. And, you know, otherwise we may not have thought of it. We get to discuss it. We get to answer it. Sometimes we fight over it. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. I want to do an episode on, on the defer keyword in go. I want to do like just an entire episode on defer. Um, because it keeps getting I, pushed off. <laughs> yeah. We've already done it. Actually. It's just going to happen at the end of the <laughs> series. Beautiful. 
It should be the last one we do. It should be. Yeah. It has to, it has to be. It, it has, has to be, to. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no. And I thought like it, it might be fun. I mean, you, the, the Go Time used to have um, people like popular projects, Free Software Friday, you know, we used to have that. Right. I, want to do, I do want to do that again um, so that we can talk, talk about current uh, projects, new projects and things that are around. Um, and I also like the idea of doing like a little quiz where we ask a question one day and get people to tweet in and then the week mm. later we can answer that question and ask the next one. We could get like a chain of, if you're, it's kind of a blockchain of quiz. Okay, like. blockchain quiz. Call it. Yeah, it's not about blockchain. It's just it's a, immutable, it's an immutable quiz that is, is append yeah. only. Yeah, and you reference the previous one. That's <laughs> trust, so there is trust a chain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Once could you do. ask a question, you can't can't take it back. There's no take backs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> well, could do that. Uh, so, so one thing we used to do with the with the original trio of Go Time, which was a hit, was our AMA episodes, mm. and oftentimes the you know the ask me anything's, which would be another cool thing to bring back. Now that we have a more a larger, more diverse panel, and you know new 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 faces, new voices, it'd be cool to maybe bring back once in a while an AMA, where people can submit questions beforehand for the whoever the panelists happen to be and uh, mm. and take those up. That'd be cool too. Yeah. Those are well, always fun. We could always do that every time even like um, at, at the end of the show or uh, I suppose it's, you do like a dedicated show to it, do you? Uh, we have, yeah. It could be a segment. Yeah. But GoTime doesn't really do the segment thing as much as uh, like JS Party, we have three segments each show and we mix and match. We have some recurring segments. We have, you know, sometimes we'll have a guest on so they'll take two of the three segments. And so we're a little bit more segmented, and so we would, we could work in an AMA as kind of like a, a third of an episode. Same thing with Free Software Friday, or we call them shoutouts. It's just like one third of an episode. But Go Time seems like, at least for now, and of course, the cool thing about podcasts is, hey, it's our show. We can change and experiment and, and, and do all those things. Um, we're not stuck right. into a time slot. But you could, if you segmented the show a little bit more, then it'd be easy to have like an AMA segment versus an entire episode. Yes. So here's here's why it doesn't get segmented then. <laughs> it's okay. because it's because for whatever reason, this is just a personal thing of mine. I like to improvise. That's how I like to when I do my uh, talks at conferences mm -hmm. and for anyone that hasn't seen them, head over to YouTube, search Matt Raya, have a look. You can watch uh, you can watch them. And I talk about things in go usually and other things mm -hmm. but but they're improvised mostly because there's too much pressure i think when you have that strict plan of what you're going to say and by the way some people in the in the go community that i know of and i assume elsewhere will have written out verbatim their talk you can mm -hmm. if you transcribe a dave cheney talk it's like it's beautifully written. It's like a blog post. Right. Um, that would be too much, I think too much pressure for me. And so my approach is have a general outline, mm -hmm. but be so free within that, that I actually can't go wrong. There's nothing to go wrong from. Right. And, and the freedom that that brings really sort of <laughs> just takes the pressure off. Um, so if we got somebody on go time that was better at organizing and, planning and and all that and then i think we could we could have those segments we could have those special little recurring you know special features little right 
Um, well, let me just say that as, as a word of encouragement, I'm very much in the same boat as you. I like to improvise. I like to change things on the fly or right before the fly. And so, so far, JS Party's segments hasn't been too much of a challenge because sometimes we, we basically you, you make a plan with, with the Mike Tyson comment, you know, everybody has a game plan until they're punched in the face, right? Once the show starts, you get punched in the face and whatever happens, happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we throw a segment out. Sometimes we reverse them in order. Sometimes we go completely off the rails and just let the show be what it is. And so it's, it's like a framework for an episode, but it's not like, well, we have to do shout outs because it's segment three and we said we we're going to do shout outs for segment three. So right. there's a lot of ro- wiggle room in there, um, but it does require more forethought. Yeah. Um, and some teamwork. And of course, if you have, it's a team show. So you have a panel. If your panel is not as by the seat of their pants as you are, then that might, you know, rub some people the wrong way. It may not work out. So yeah, worth a try, worth uh, mixing up a little bit. But yeah, I agree if, if everybody, a lot of people prefer to have a plan, stick to the plan. And so maybe that would box you in a little bit. Right. All right, Matt. Well, hey, thanks for uh, coming backstage with me. Uh, nice to get to, know you, get to know you a little bit more. I feel like I know you because I do listen to Go Time on the regular. I do not write a lick of Go. I haven't written any since that API project I did a couple years back. And yet I immensely enjoy the show, not just because it's the changelog show, but because like you said, there's lots of different topics. There's lots of things to learn. And for me, there's lots of just laughs and camaraderie in the Go community. So I really appreciate you and I appreciate Go time. And thanks for coming backstage and getting to, so I can get to know you a little better. No, yeah. Thanks for having me. I look forward to listening to more Changelog podcasts. Does that sound, did that sound too inauthentic? <laughs> Uh, I hadn't judged it yet. I was I was trying to find the stop button on my recording. Okay, well, spoiler alert, it does. It's too inauthentic. Let me do okay, it. Well, we'll just leave. <laughs> we'll just leave this part in, and then everybody will know that you were concerned about it. That's what it's always like, mate. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> I always want bits I've said out taken out of the go time. It never happens. Oh, I know. I've heard you make jokes about it. You're like, the editors don't edit anything out of the show. They edit out other people. So, like, <laughs> other people sound brilliant on it. <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs>